بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد الحمد لله this is lesson six in our tafsir of surah al-kahf and after covering the story of the, or the background to the chapter we looked at the opening of the chapter and the themes within the opening then we looked at the first story in the chapter which is the story of the ashabul kaf the young men in the cave after that came a theme where allah ta'ala was addressing the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam with various commands after that theme came the second story in the chapter which is the story of the dialogue between the two brothers, one of whom had this very large and vast garden. And that's what we covered in our last session. We explored the meanings of that dialogue and whether or not they were two actual brothers or is it just a parable? And the parable here would not refer to actual living human beings, but a general story with a meaning. And we said that the strongest view is that the story of the two men in the garden represents an actual historical event of two actual brothers from Bani Israel, and that the meanings apply to the Quraysh in their relationship and reaction to the Prophet Wasallam. So after that story, there comes what we're going to go through today, which is a set of three different themes, followed by the story of Musa and Khidr. So today we cover the first of the three themes between the story of the two men in the garden and the story of Musa and Khidr. So if you look at the structure, we have... First story, of course, Ashab al-Kaf, the namesake of the chapter. Then we have the theme addressing the Prophet ﷺ with various commands. Then we have the story of the two men in the garden. So between the story of the two men in the garden and the story of Sayyidina Musa and Khidr, we have three themes between them that are not stories. So we're going to address the first of those three today, inshaAllah. So we have one theme, then another theme, then another theme, general themes, then the story of Musa and Khidr. There is a theme between these two. Two men in the garden and Khidr and Musa between them, theme. Everything is interrelated, but we're just looking at the overall structure right now. So we don't have a story until we get to the story of Musa and Khidr. So we have three themes before we get to that story. So we're going to look at verses 45 to 59. So what we have here, verses 45 to 50, give us clarity about the reality of the dunya and its end and a description of the Day of Judgment. Verses 51 to 53 give us the state of the mushrikun and the warning toward them and what's going to happen on the Day of Judgment. And it also tells us the story of Adam and Shaytan. 
And then we have 54 through 59, which is about the clarity of the Qur'an and its power in convincing those who are open to receive guidance and verses that explain some of the reasons why people are stubborn and stick to their disbelief and verses that explain the purpose behind sending the messengers and engaging with disbelievers. So we're going to look at the first of those. So we come to verse 45. Verse 45, Allah Ta'ala says, أَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ بِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ وَضْرِبْ لَهُمْ مَثَلَ الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا كَمَا أَنزَلْنَاهُ مِنَ السَّمَاءِ فَاخْتَلَطَ بِهِ نَبَاتُ الْأَرْضِ فَأَصْبَحَ هَشِيمًا تَذْرُوهُ الْرِيَاحِ وَكَانَ اللَّهُ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ مُقْتَدِرًا Allah Ta'ala says, and cite for them the parable of the present life, the life of dunya. It's like water that we send down from the sky. The plants of the earth absorb it. But then it becomes debris scattered by the wind. God has absolute power over everything. This is verse 45. And we see that the beginning of this verse starts with wa. And. When you say and, it's linked to something before it. So what is the and linked to here? Well, we have wadrib, it's a command, a command to cite a parable, to strike a similitude, which means that this wow is connected to the previous command to also strike a similitude. If we go back, we find that the word idrib that command verb is mentioned earlier in the command to tell the story or the parable of the two men in the garden. So this is linked to that previous command. So just as Allah has commanded the Prophet ﷺ to strike the similitude of the two men and the garden, now he commands him to strike the similitude of the dunya, the parable of the dunya. So. It's really important that we pay attention to the logical structure of the Qur'an, the grammatical structure, and why the wow is here, and what it's linking to in the previous verses. Because what we see is a pattern emerging, where Allah Ta'ala is revealing verses to be recited in a response to Quraysh. Because remember, you go all the way back to the beginning, and we establish from the narrations that this chapter was revealed as a response to the challenge of Quraysh about Ashabul Kaf. When they received that question to put forward, this was the answer in the form of this chapter. So a lot of these commands are given telling the Prophet ﷺ to answer in this way and to strike this parable, to mention this similitude and mention this and tell them this in addition to the story they asked about. So Allah is not just revealing the story as the answer. Allah reveals the story as the answer to the challenge and gives him more things to tell them as well that they need to know. So Allah is saying once again, cite for them the parable of the present life. Just as you cited the story of the two men in the garden, 
cite the parable of dunya. So these are the pagans of Quraysh, many of whom demanded the Prophet ﷺ to kick out the poor among the Sahaba and to give him to give them a private audience with him by kicking the poor among the Sahaba out. So the first example was about the two men in the garden. The second one, this one, is about the reality of dunya. So if you go back to the previous story, the story of the two men in the garden, it was an event in history, but the meaning of the story itself reflects the nature of dunya. Like this man had all this dunya, and what happened to his dunya? He came the next morning and it was all wiped away. It was all gone. So that's a similitude to the reality of dunya. And well, now comes another similitude about the reality of dunya. So the first story or parable is explaining that dunya is faniya. It's fading. It's ephemeral. It's not permanent. This similitude tells us the exact same thing but it gives us a different example, a different similitude. Allah Ta'ala gives the example in the form of a parable, a mathal, something that we can imagine, something that we can, so we can connect the reality of dunya to a common experience. Most people have some experience with houseplants. Most people have some experience seeing gardens and flowers and things outside of their house. We know how things tend to work. That if you plant a flower, you have to water it and then it grows and weeds come and you pull the weeds and for a lot of plants, eventually if the water doesn't come by humans, or it has to come by rain. If there's not enough rain, what's going to happen to the plant? It becomes uh, it, it lacks the water, it eventually dries up and turns into chaff or debris. It becomes a, a, a dry stalk. And eventually with the winds, those stalks will blow away, right? Just look at the leaves now. We're in the fall, right? So as the temperature gets colder, right, you see the leaves start changing color. And now when the wind comes, they are now all over the parking lot and they're going to blow further into the woods and they're going to just sit there in the woods on the ground and over years and years they get pulverized and eventually they become a part of the topsoil so that's a basic experience that we witness growing up in the world noticing things around us so that's an experience that everyone recognizes and Allah Ta'ala gives us the method saying that the dunya is just like that. That's all we're reading, is taking the common experience of plant life and how it grows, dies, dries up, and gets blown away, and saying that that's exactly how the dunya is too. That's what we're, that's what we're reading about here. So Allah Ta'ala mentions that, and cite for them the parable of the present life, meaning the lower world of dunya, it's like water that we send down from the sky. The plants of the earth absorb it, but then it becomes debris scattered by the wind. God has absolute power over everything. 
So Allah has absolute power over everything. Why does he mention that at the end? He has power over everything. First by creating these plants, then by causing them to grow and flourish and sending the rain. And he has power over them by causing them to die. If Allah willed, they, they could have survived without needing water. But Allah causes them to die. Allah has created these things within a system. And he creates the clouds and delivers the rain and wills for these things to flourish and eventually wither and die and become scattered. And so Allah Ta'ala has human beings within that same system. And everything in the world is in the same system of genesis, birth, right, growth, maturity, and then maturation, getting older, withering and dying, and then becoming scattered. That is the human reality. That's the reality for plant life, for aquatic life, for animal life, for everything in dunya eventually is going to fade. كُلُّ مَنْ عَلَيْهَا فَانٍ Allah says, so everything has its spring, summer, fall, and winter. Everything has its seasons. And we talked a, a good amount about the seasons of human beings when we did a few years ago the lives of man. When we covered the work of Sheikh Abdullah bin Ali al Haddad, the lives of man, he talks about these seasons. How the spring is when you're born, that's when you grow the most. And then summer is when you're at that peak of energy and strength. And then comes the autumn, which is when things start to slow down. You're alive, but you're a little slower. Then comes the winter, when you're still alive, but you're a lot slower. And then eventually, at the deepest part of the winter, you, you die, right? So everything has its season. So Allah is reminding us and reminding Quraysh, reminding everyone who reads these verses about the reality of the dunya. So what's beautiful about the amthal is that instead of, them, instead of these realities being discussed in a philosophical or intellectual way, they are discussed by uh, citing everyday examples that anyone can relate to. Anyone who's seen house plants and tended to them and either forgot to water them and they died or overwatered them and they died, they see what happens and they observe the seasons around them and they notice these patterns and how things that die among plant life end up getting scattered in by the wind and eventually pulverized and becoming chaff and debris, they realize that the dunya is just like that, right? And this is one of the ways of education. You could easily philosophize about the lives of human beings and how they go through this, these stages, but mo a lot of people wouldn't relate to that because it sounds too, too intellectual, right? But if you say, yeah, we're like those plants, we're like the world around us. We're not outside of this system. Just like everything has its period of growth and maturity and slowing down decay and death, we do too. So what applies to the dunya applies to us. So we're all going to die. And that's the reminder. People can relate to that. So one can think about the passing nature of the dunya, right? And Allah draws our attention to plants and how they thrive and eventually wither and die and become dry stalks and eventually get scattered by strong winds. 
So it ties the reality to something palpable in nature around us. This is why to understand the Qur'an and to understand the Sunnah, a lot of the examples mentioned require us to be familiar with the world around us, familiar with nature, familiar with the patterns of existence, familiar with what it takes to live in a world uh, of complexity, right? So the fleeting nature of the dunya is described here, and it is described as being similar to plants and vegetation after they're watered. Allah sends down the rain from the sky that causes the earth to turn green. That mixes with the vegetation of the earth, giving it life and color and vibrancy. So we were given this image that we're familiar with, and then it becomes like chaff, or debris scattered by the wind. Now the question we have to ask ourselves: if the dunya is being compared to this, and like vegetation it becomes like chaff, dry debris scattered by the wind, how much does that debris cost? How valuable is that debris? If I gathered a huge pile of leaves outside and I put a price tag on them, how much would I charge? Who would buy them? No one would buy them. They're, they're essentially worthless. Chaff or debris, dead leaves, it's lifeless matter. They don't have any real intrinsic value. Just like the scattered leaves and dry stalks of vegetation, likewise the dunya as a whole doesn't have any intrinsic value at the end of the day. Right? So we see these clear stages of water coming down and seeping into the ground and then the plant growing and flourishing by that water, and then the water becomes less and less, and the plant dries up. Eventually it withers and dies and becomes a dry stalk, and the winds come and cause it to scatter, and that's the dunya, right? And this is where we end up going wrong as human beings, because we see the signs around us in nature, and we somehow think that we're outside of nature that somehow we're not also subject to those same patterns. We treat our own, we see that as the reality of life outside of us, but we act as human beings often as if we are perennials that are never without water and sustenance, that we're always going to be here, we're never going to wither and die and scatter. But the reality is we're going to wither and die and and barring a few exceptions among human beings whose bodies do not decompose, everyone's body decomposes as well. The only difference is that that applies to dunya. In the hereafter, we are perennial in the sense that we're resurrected and then judged and then a person enters the abode of Jannah where there's no death. But that's the reality in this dunya. So, if you look at the analogy of plant life and how plants grow and thrive, I think there's three ways you can approach this. And this is not found in any tafsir. It was just, it's just me thinking about this. If you, let's say there's a, there's a plant someone brought. They came to visit your house and they brought a nice house plant. So there's three, I think there's three ways you can deal with this. You can put the plant somewhere and never bother watering it. It's just going to die, right? That's not what's meant here. 
you're meant to water your dunya. You're meant to take care of yourself and others around you. You water it, right? So you can't just neglect it while you're alive. The other way would, would be to receive the houseplant as a gift and you put it somewhere and you obsess about it uh, under the mistaken belief that if you obsess about it, it's going to live forever. And you obsess about it and you're always pouring water, you're always putting fertilizer in this effort to make it live for as long as you live. And you obsess about it. And this is also a mistake because plants are going to die. Certain plants can be sustained for a long time, but eventually all plants are going to die, right? The third option, which seems to, be, to me to be the most sensible, is that you receive the house plant as a gift. You put it somewhere nice where there's sunlight, adequate sunlight, the right temperature. You collect the water. You, put the, you give it the right amount of water or any fertilizer if it needs that so the plant can grow and thrive and survive. But you have a clear-headed attitude about the whole process. You know it's going to eventually die. Leaves are going to fall off. You can't preserve it and make it live forever. So we're in the dunya, so we have to survive. We don't obsess about surviving to the point where it's the only thing that matters. بَلْ تُؤْثِرُونَ الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا وَالْآخِرَةُ خَيْرٌ وَأَبْقَى You don't prefer the, the dunya over everything else, but you still have to live in the world. So that's, that's the balanced path of Islam. We realize that we have to live, but none of it lasts. If none of it lasts, we take care of what we have to take care of by realizing that we're going to leave this place soon. If nothing in the dunya lasts, if everything around us is eventually going to fall into absolute oblivion with its death and crumbling and passing, if none of this has any value and it's not going to last, it brings up the question. If this is not going to last, then what is going to last? What is going to last? And that is answered in the very next verse. So Allah is telling us in the first verse, the dunya is like these plants. They're not going to last. And it's as if the person hears this and wonders, okay, if, this, if none of this is going to last, what really is enduring and lasting? And Allah answers that in the next verse. He says, Al-malu wal-banoon zinatul hayat al-dunya wal-baqiyat al-salihat khayrun inda rabbika thawaban wa khayrun amala. Wealth in children are the adornments of the present life, the life of this dunya. But the things that last, the virtuous deeds, are better with your Lord for reward and better for hope. Now, this verse is very clear and it's very, very logical. It's so logical and clear that Imam al-Razi, who is a very famous theologian, one of the greatest theologians of Islamic history, he takes this verse and says that you can put this verse, the meanings of the verse, into a syllogistic form, a qiyas mantiqi, where you have premises and a conclusion. You know, premise, premise, conclusion. We covered a little bit about that in the Aqidah class, right? A is B, B is C, therefore A is C, right? 
He puts this verse, its meaning, into a syllogism to show you how logically airtight it is. He says, premise number one, we take from this verse, premise number one, wealth and children are from the adornment of the dunya. Very clear. It's stated in the verse. Premise number two, all adornments of the world are passing. They're fading. They don't last forever. They're fania. The conclusion is therefore wealth and children are also ephemeral and fading and they're also going to die and pass just like everything else. Your wealth and your children will not last forever. Very simple. A is B, B is C, therefore A is C. So in the previous verse, Allah is telling us that dunya does not have ultimate value in His sight. And in this verse, Allah is telling us what has true everlasting value. So He does this in a very profound and beautiful way by contrasting what we as humans most value in this world with what He considers the most valuable thing that endures. So if you ask any human being, what is the most valuable thing in this world? They're going to say, wealth and their children, right? And then Allah says, the most valuable thing that endures, those aren't going to endure. What will endure is al-baqiyat al-salihat, which we'll talk about. So to explore this, we, we want to look at the meaning of zina, why it mentions wealth and children, what are the baqiyat al-salihat, and so on. Before we do that, though, we want to tie this verse back to the previous verses. Tie this in with the reason for the revelation of these verses. Remember the story about the wealthy idol worshipers who went and wanted to have a private audience with the Prophet ﷺ and who refused to sit with the poor among the believers. Right? So... This verse is basically establishing how foolish they are to brag and boast over the poor among the believers because they're bragging about what they have which has already been described as ephemeral and not lasting. Meanwhile, they're bragging over people who have what they don't have. They're bragging over believers who have what is actually lasting forever in the hereafter. Al-Baqiyat Salihat. So they think this lasts forever. They act as if it lasts forever, their dunya. They use it to brag and boast over those who don't have that dunya. Meanwhile, those believers who don't have that dunya, who are poor, have something that is everlasting. It doesn't make sense. How can you brag and boast over something temporary, boasting over someone who has something that's permanent and of eternal value? So Allah is illustrating the foolishness of Quraysh for bragging and boasting over their dunya and looking down on those believers who didn't have dunya like they did but had something far more valuable which is that iman. So they had what has enduring value al-baqiyat al-salihat and this is one of those common terms that we hear in our Islamic vocabulary al-baqiyat al-salihat khayrun inda rabbika thawaban wa khayrun amala the 
the things that last, the things that endure, the virtuous deeds. Al-Baqiyat al-Salihat literally means the enduring righteous things or those things that are righteous which survive and last forever. That's a very general statement. What are the Baqiyat? What are Al-Baqiyat al-Salihat to be exact? When we go to the tafsir, we see that there's a variety of opinions about what exactly constitutes al-baqiyat al-salihat. And you'll remember when we talked about tafsir, how if you have a variety of opinions about what something means, sometimes they're in conflict, in which case one is right and one is wrong. But sometimes they're not really in conflict. There's multiple opinions, but they're all, this, they're all correct. They're all different things that constitute that thing, right? So, Asirat al-Mustaqim in Surah Al-Fatiha, what is that? Some of them say it is the Qur'an, some say it is the Sunnah, some say it is Islam, some say it's the Deen, some say it is Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Are any of them wrong? No. All of those things constitute the Asirat al-Mustaqim or an aspect of the Asirat al-Mustaqim. Likewise, with Al-Baqiyat al-Salihat. There's four or five different opinions mentioned by the Mufassirun from the generation of the Sahaba and the Tabi'un and onwards, and they're all correct. One view is that Al-Baqiyat Salihat are the sayings, Subhanallah, Alhamdulillah, Wa La Ilaha Illallah, Wallahu Akbar. And in one narration, Wa La Hawla Wa La Quwata Illa Billah. There is a number of narrations from uh, the Sahaba and the Tabi'un who say that the enduring righteous actions, al-baqiyat al-salihat, refer to the phrases of tasbih and tahmeed and tahleel, all of these things that we say in our general dhikr, whether it's in prayer or outside of prayer, saying subhanallah, alhamdulillah, wa la ilaha illallah, wallahu akbar. And the ulama explain how their baqiyat in terms of their reward, in terms of what they impart to the soul of meanings and depth, especially when the person thinks about what they mean. And there's a lot of detail they give about how each of them is unique, how the meaning of the tasbih and what it cultivates within the person, the meaning of alhamdulillah and what it cultivates within the person, the meaning of la ilaha illallah and what it cultivates and the takbir and so on. So we could go down that route and go into great detail looking at what they have said, but that's the primary view among the Mufassirun, that Allah says, in comparison to the wealth of these pagan Quraysh, by which they brag and boast over the poor, what they have is not of any enduring value. Meanwhile, the ones they're bragging to and boasting over have what is truly enduring, and that is al-baqiyat al-salihat, namely the dhikr of Allah Ta'ala in these various forms. That's one view. The other view is that al-baqiyat al-salihat refers to the five daily prayers, as-salawat al-khams. So you see there's no contradiction there because those are also enduring. Their rewards and their effect are enduring and benefit the person in this life and into the hereafter. 
Then you have the third opinion, which says that al-baqiyat al-salihat are good words. And that could be anything. It could be assalamu alaikum. It could be a kind word. It could be saying truth in a very difficult position. Even if it comes across harshly, it's still a good word. It doesn't always mean a gentle word. It can even mean a forceful word of truth in the presence of a tyrant. It can mean complimenting someone. It can mean uh, consoling someone who's grieving. Anything that constitutes a good word is among the al-baqiyat al-salihat, according to this interpretation. And lastly, some of the ulama say that al-baqiyat al-salihat refer to every good deed that brings you into Allah's presence and awareness of Him. While every deed that brings you to ghafla, to distraction, is not from al-baqiyat al-salihat. That's probably the most expansive meaning because that means you're setting up the chairs and taking them down in the social hall, preparing for something, and you're doing it for the sake of Allah to be helpful and volunteer to assist your brothers and sisters. That's a general good deed. So that good deed, that when you're mindful of the intention behind it, it brings you to Allah's presence. That's from the Baqiyat Salihat. But if you were setting up the chairs for some other reason that didn't have to do with a general good thing, maybe it was just to do whatever, it's maybe bringing you to ghafla, distraction, that won't be from the Baqiyat Salihat. Because the fruits of it are only enjoyed in the world. Right? Whereas the fruits of that good deed done bringing you to Allah's presence are enjoyed in the hereafter as well. So that's comprehensive of everything, really. That basically means any good deed that you do with intention and presence. So Allah is saying that these people are bragging and boasting about something that is ultimately ephemeral and fading that will be just like a plant that dries up and shrivels and becomes like scattered uh, chaff that's the thing with which they brag and boast over the poor among the believers who have al-baqiyat salihat they have all of these things and the sahaba had all of these things they had those general good deeds they had those good words they had the five daily prayers they had the tasbihat tahmidat and so on they had all of this so this is what the baqiyat salihat referred to but notice in the verse that Allah Ta'ala mentions in the very beginning, Al-Malu wal-Banuna zinatul hayat dunya Right? Allah mentions two things here, wealth and children. If you think about dunya, what are the two most important things in anyone's dunya? Your money, your dunya, your wealth, and your children. And most of our time and energy are spent tending to either one of these two, right? So most of our concerns or worries are either about our finances or about our children, right? The money, the job, the work, the bills, the savings, buying this, the grocery items, the to-do list, saving for this, shopping for that, worry, or worried about the kids, Worried about their education, their health, who they're going to marry, what they're going to do, all of these things. 
So Allah Ta'ala calls both of these, wealth and children, zina. What is zina? Zina means adornment. It means beauty. It means decoration. Does that mean these things are intrinsically bad? Not at all. They are made attractive to us and they are made to capture our attention. Right? And we see that meaning in the third chapter of the Quran, in Surah Ali Imran. In the beginning of the chapter, Allah says, Zuyida lin nasi hubbu shahawati min al nisa'i wal banina wal qanatir al muqantarati min al dhahabi wal fiddati wal khayl al musawamati wal an'ami wal harf. Thadika mata'u al hayat al dunya. Wallahu indahu husnu al ma'ab. Allah says, Zuyina lin nas. Using that word, zina, but in a verb. Now, this is a passive verb. Mabni lil majhul. It doesn't say, Zayyanallahu. Allah does not ascribe the action to himself. He uses the passive form, which means the, these things have been made to seem or appear beautiful and adorned for human beings. It's not ascribing that action to anyone in particular, right? Basic passive verb in Arabic. If you said, Duriba Zaydun, Zayd was hit. Is it possible that you know who hit Zayd? Yes. You may know who hit Zayd, but you don't want to say it. Or there's some other reason why you don't mention who hit Zayd. So instead of identifying who struck him, you say, Zayd was hit. Duriba Zayd. Instead of, Taraba Zaydun Amra, Zayd hit Amr. Or in this case, Amr hit Zayd. So, there's certain rhetorical reasons why you would use a passive verb instead of an active verb. Because sometimes, maybe you don't know who did it. So you just say, Zayd was hit. Maybe you know, but you don't want to say it. Maybe it was you, and you don't want to confess. Now, when Allah says, Zuyira nasi, Allah uh, says that these things of dunya have been adorned for human beings. Why does he use it in the passive tense? Who actually made these things adorned for human beings? He himself, subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is the standard interpretation. In the tafsir works, the standard interpretation is that it is Allah ta'ala who made these things naturally appealing to human beings. Wealth, children, spouse, uh, a nice ride. Allah uses the, he uses the word uh, heaps of gold and silver and uh, distinguished and powerful horses. But we could say that means any nice ride, you know, yeah. nice car, right? Uh, cattle, tillage, the means of income, the means of food and so on. These things have been adorned and made fair to us as human beings. We like them naturally. The standard interpretation is that zuyina is a passive verb, but that it is Allah Ta'ala who made those things uh, appear attractive to us in our nature. Another opinion is that the passive form, zuyina, is used and that the one who made them seem attractive is uh, shaitan. That's a second opinion. And I think it is possible to entertain both, that we naturally are attracted to the things of the world, but 
certain things can also be made of those, can be made to seem attractive to lead us into haram. And were it not for that extra tazyin, that, that whispering of craving after them, maybe we wouldn't chase after them as, as much as we, 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 we are now. At any rate, the zina means beauty and adornment. And Allah Ta'ala says in the beginning of this verse, Al-malu wal-banun, zinatul hayat al-dunya. Very clear. So you have to contrast that with what's truly enduring, wal-baqiyat al-salihat, which means that these things are what truly last, and these are the things that one should pin their hopes in, uh, those things being accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we as Muslims have to understand the nature of dunya while also recognizing that we are not a life-denying ummah. I think there's a, there's a tendency among some people to misunderstand the nature of zuhud, the nature of uh, being non-attached to dunya. It doesn't mean that we are a life-denying people where oh, wealth is bad, offspring is bad, these things are bad because they are dunya and therefore they must, they must somehow be cursed. And we must shun them and live all uh, of us should live as monks, right? That's not how we are. We're not a life-denying nation. There's a, a saying attributed to Imam Ali radiallahu anhu where he says, Al-malu wal-banoon harf dunya wal-amlu salih harf al-akhira he says that wealth and children are the harvest of the dunya and righteous deeds are the harvest of the hereafter and Allah has gathered both for some people. Well, you want to have both. You want to do the right thing with this one and make it a means to the other one. That's it. So Allah reminds us of these realities. After talking about dunya, mentioning this parable and mentioning what truly lasts, Allah then transitions to a description of some of the events that will happen on the Day of Judgment. This is where we are. So now it transitions into a brief description of some of the events that will take place on Yawm Al-Qiyamah, on the day when we're going to see the value of all of those things. What was the value of that dunya that they used to brag and boast over others? And what is the value of iman? What is the value of, of have tawheed, of righteous actions, of justice? That's the day where we see what has everlasting value and what has ultimately zero value in the big picture. So Allah Ta'ala makes this shift. So he spoke about dunya compared to the hereafter. So you have to pay very close attention here. First we're talking about, we're hearing about dunya. And then Allah contrasts dunya with al-baqiyat al-salihat, what endures in the akhirah. Enduring in the akhirah here means that thing which is the means of you entering jannah. So you have dunya and you have akhirah. But then you have qiyamah, which is in between that transition. So Allah now mentions that description. And he gives four descriptions in these verses. In the first, he says, وَيَوْمَ نُسَيِّرُ الْجِبَالَ وَتَرَ الْأَرْضَ بَارِزَةً وَحَشَرْنَاهُمْ 
فَلَمْ نُغَادِرْ مِنْهُمْ أَحَدًا On the day when we will set the mountains in motion, and you will see the earth emerging, and we gather them together and leave none of them behind. عُرِضُوا عَلَى رَبِّكَ صَفًّا لَقَلَ جِئْتُمُونَا كَمَا خَلَقَنَاكُمْ أَوَّلَ مَرَّ بَلْ زَعَنْتُمْ أَنْ لَنْ نَجَعَلَ لَكُمْ مَوْعِدًا They'll be presented before your Lord in a row. You have come to us as we created you the first time, although you claimed we would not set a meeting for you. So in these two verses, Allah mentions four of the ahwal, or the frightening things on the Day of Judgment. The first one is on the day when we will set the mountains in motion. So the mountains will be uprooted from their places. They will be pulverized into fine dust particles as if they didn't exist. And this will be something witnessed by the last people alive in dunya as the Day of Judgment is initiated. Those are shirarul khalq, the worst of Allah's creation. Uh, they're not believers. But everyone gets to see the after effects of that. Because the after effects, what we have are the judgment planes, right? Where the earth is altered and replaced into something else. So even if a person is not alive when the mountains are pulverized, we, they will see the effects of that with the flat judgment plane on which every single human being stands. So mountains, if you think about mountains, they are the largest naturally occurring physical structures that we can see. So if the largest naturally occurring physical structures are pulverized ultimately into dust, the things that are seen as the firmest and most unshakable, unmovable things in the world, what about the other things? Right? So even more so were those things be pulverized and ultimately destroyed and altered and changed and replaced into something else entirely that becomes the judgment planes on which human beings stand. So Allah mentions these mountains. And then the second one is, and you will see the earth bariza. Bariza means an open plain. So this means that it will emerge flat and fully exposed. So that's the after effect. So the mountains are pulverized, the earth is demolished and obliterated, it is replaced and changed and transformed into something else. And then you see on the Day of Judgment, the earth is bariza, meaning it becomes this open plain that's flat and fully exposed where no one can hide. There's no more mountains, no more hills, uh, there's no tree stumps, there's no objects behind which someone can hide. It is a flat white surface. And we talked a lot about that in the lives of man in the chapter on the Day of Judgment. We read those verses in the tafsir and we looked at the hadith which describe that process, when the earth is replaced and altered. And this is referring to that same event. So the mountains being pulverized and the earth becoming an open plain, the judgment plains, that's number two. And then three, the actual gathering. And we will gather them and leave not one of them behind. So this means every single human being and jinn from the beginning of humanity and the beginning of jinn kind too until the very last will all be resurrected on that day. It's, it's, it's really hard to imagine 
how many people will be there? We right now have seven point whatever billion people right now alive. How many people are going to be born after this? How many people are buried right now? How, and, and that's just for human beings. But the Day of Judgment is Al-Insi Wanjan, right? Humans and jinn. And we don't see the jinn in this life, but we can see them in the hereafter. So how many of them were populating the earth before the creation of Adam? How many of them were killed in their own battles? How many of them died? How many of them are still alive? How many of them will be born in their jinni unseen realm that we don't have access to right now? We have no way of knowing this. It's from the ghaib and the human beings and the actual number. That's ghaib nisbi. It's unseen relative to us because we don't know. But all those people are resurrected and all of them are on that judgment plane. It's something that the mind has a hard time grasping. Right? You can visualize it to a certain extent, but you can't really get a sense of the numbers. But that will happen, and there's accountability. So that's number three. So there's the mountains being pulverized. There's the earth being flattened and emerging plain and flat where nowhere to, there's nowhere to hide. And then there's the gathering where no one's left behind. Like there's no one who actually gets away from that. And then number four, the people are going to be arranged in rows or ranks. Indeed, you have come to us as we created you the first time. Nay, but you claim that we would never appoint a time for you. So this verse establishes that all of mankind will be brought before the divine presence in rows, in lines. And... The commentators, uh, the Mufassirun, they mentioned that people will be lined up in rows just as they are for Salat. So if you look at it from that perspective, you, you start to understand really the, some of the deeper meanings behind our ritual acts of worship. A lot of what we do is kind of like a dress rehearsal for the Day of Judgment. Yeah. The greatest example of that is a Hajj. But you have that in Salat too. So you have Sufuf in Salat, you have Sufuf on the Day of Judgment, right? Just as you stand in rows here, you stand in rows there. Just as you, in, in Hajj, it's really clear, right? So many of the rituals are basically a dress rehearsal, a literal dress rehearsal in the case of men wearing ihram for the Day of Judgment. Standing in Arafat, Qiyamah, right? You're not going to be in anything. But you basically, you've stripped yourself of your garments and you put on something where you're indistinguishable from other people as a man with the, with the rida and the izar. Uh, so obviously you're not undressed, but in the sense of you being divested of your things and all standing at a single place out in the open, it's very similar, right? So here in this verse, after mentioning the rose, Allah Ta'ala says, Indeed, you've come to us as we created you the first time. Nay, but you claim that we would never appoint a time for you. The ulama mentioned that this is addressing the people who denied the Day of Judgment. The people who denied life after death, who thought that this life is all there is, 
and it's the most important thing. They will be addressed on the Day of Judgment by Allah Ta'ala, and He will say to them, You have come to us as we created you the first time. Nay, but you claimed that we would never appoint a time for you. The scholars of tafsir say that Allah says this to those disbelievers in order for them to feel the severity of the day and to create in them a greater sense of remorse and regret and sorrow. Because it's basically a person facing consequences and being told you're facing the consequences. You didn't believe this would happen. Here it is in front of you. Just saying that makes it worse. So for a person who believes this is all there is, and they say, there's no life after death. We die, we turn to dust, and it's lights out. They denied it in this life. And then Allah addresses them in the day of, on the day of judgment saying, this is what you denied, and here you are. Just that address makes the whole thing worse. It intensifies the remorse and the grief for them, as opposed to them just standing and seeing it face to face. That adds a layer of intensity to the experience for deniers of the Day of Judgment. Right? And there's other examples of this in the Quran, where Allah does address people, telling us what He will say to certain deniers and certain disbelievers. Uh, this is, فَذُوقُوا Right? Taste what you used to deny. Right? Experience what you used to reject. Just that saying adds to the intensity. So this is what we see in this, the, these two verses, these four descriptions of the Day of Judgment. Now remember, this is all linked back to Quraysh. Their challenge to the Prophet ﷺ about the story of the Ashab al-Kaf, the answer by the story, in the form of the story itself, and all the other themes, the commands given to him, the story of the two men in the garden, and an answer to their boasting and bragging over the poor among the Sahaba, whom they didn't want to share space with. This is all addressing them, and also addressing anyone else who fits that description, during their time or after their time. So then we come to the next verse, where we have more description of the Day of Judgment. And the book will be placed and you will see the sinners fearful of its contents. And they will say, Woe to us! What is with this book that leaves nothing small or big, but it has enumerated it? They will find everything they had done present therein. Your Lord does not wrong anyone. So what is this book? Book of Deeds, right? It's the register and where the deeds, good and bad, are recorded. And this book of records, this record of deeds, is a comprehensive witness of whatever we say. And it's basically establishing the hujjah, the proof over people. Allah already knows. Allah does not need a book, right? When Fir'aun challenged Musa, Musa alayhi salam, 
mentions the knowledge of Allah Ta'ala about matters that are decreed. And he said that those matters decreed, عِنْدَ رَبِّي فِي كِتَاب They're with my Lord inscribed in a book, right? The maqadir, the decrees of what's going to happen. And to, he wants to clarify to Fir'aun that these things are in a book, but not because Allah needs a book to remember. Because then he says, لَا يَضِلُّ رَبِّي وَلَا يَشْقَى وَلَا يَنْسَى My Lord is not misled, nor does he forget. So he's clarifying to Fir'aun, these things are recorded in a book, the book of destiny, not because Allah forgets, not because Allah might misremember something. No, they're just recorded for the angels and for others, and the deeds are recorded and put in a book, not because of any forgetfulness. They're recorded for others. So these things are presented as this comprehensive witness. Some people receive the book in the right hand, others receive it in the left hand. And we ask Allah to be from Ashabul Yameen who receive it in the right hand. And it shows you the significance of the right hand in the daily things that you do. Uh, Sheikh Muhammad Al-Qandusi rahimahullah, has a lengthy discourse about the significance of right and left and how so many things we do with our right are to remind us of this reality. And he takes it and applies it to so many things that you would never think of. He would say, if, uh, if you're on a path you're walking on a trail and you don't know where to go and it verges left or right, just choose the right one, right? Tafa'ulan, just, okay, the right is always preferred, I'll just take the right. He says, if someone cuts up a pumpkin or a watermelon and you have all of these pieces to choose from, choose the inferior piece if it's on the right, just because it's on the right, don't choose the better piece that's in the middle or to the side. Go to the right, even if it's a smaller piece, just because of the barakah of the right. Just reminding you of the, the, the uh, meaning of this. Uh, and there's more to be said about that. But, uh, so the, the book is placed. And Allah says that when the mujrimun, the criminals, receive their books, they're going to be mushfiqeen. Mushfiqeen here means they're going to be fearful. They'll be worried and worried about what's in it. And they know that the book is full of things that they did. So they're fully aware of what's in the book, even if they haven't read it. Because, right? People know what they've done and there's no way for them to hide it. So they realize that this is an accurate record of what they remember and recall in this life, uh, but they're worried about the consequences. So they're afraid and they have remorse and embarrassment. And that's why they say, Yahweh latana, woe, woe was to us. And then this is Allah's justice. That's why Allah concludes the verse by saying, Wala yadlimu rabbuka ahada. Your Lord wrongs no one. That's the day of absolute justice. People may do all sorts of crimes and depravities in this world and get away with them and die without facing justice in this life, but they never escape ultimate justice in the hereafter. How many murderers and rapists and uh, horrible people got away with their crimes? There's a lot. There's a lot. But there's ultimate justice in the hereafter. We pursue justice in this life. We don't use the afterlife as a cop-out to not establish justice in this life. But we recognize that ultimate justice is with Allah Ta'ala. 
Now for us as believers, we always look at these two things, the adl of Allah, the justice of Allah, and the fadl of Allah. As a believer, as a Muslim, do you want Allah's justice or do you want His, his grace? grace? You want the grace, right? Justice for people who do wrong to other people. But between us and Allah, we don't want Allah to deal with us uh, exactly as we deserve. Because uh, barring the prophets and the select, you know, that's, that's not going to be a good outcome. We want his fadl and grace and pardon. So we ask for the fadl and we don't ask for him to establish his adl upon us in the exacting way that would not overlook any small thing. We ask for those things to be wiped away. So no one's wronged regardless. Allah will overlook and pardon and forgive and that's out of his grace and justice. And those who wronged others, Allah will establish justice. Mm-hmm. and didn't necessarily practice Islam. And then they look back at their past and they feel like, I can't move on. And look at all the things I've done. Like, subhanAllah, just ask Allah for forgiveness and move forward. Like, it's just, you know, He's given you that realization now. Right. right? Our, good de- our good deeds do not increase Allah one iota. Exactly. They do not benefit Allah. Our bad deeds do not harm Allah one iota. So... For him to forgive bad deeds that don't harm him whatsoever, that's easy for Allah. Mm-hmm. We ask for that fadl, we ask for that forgiveness, and we ask for the acceptance of the deeds, the good deeds that he inspired us to do. Mm-hmm. That's easy for Allah. Mm-hmm. So this, this ends that description of the Day of Judgment. So verse 49 describes that receiving of the book and what the people will say, not all of the people but the mujrimun, the criminals. And the criminals, noticing this book, they know what's going on. They know the consequences. They know what they did. And they say, مَا لِهَادَ الْكِتَابِ لَا يُغَادِرُوا صَغِيرَةً وَلَا كَبِيرَةً إِلَّا أَحْصَاهَا What is with this book that doesn't leave any, anything out, neither small nor large? Imam al-Razi talks about this part of the verse and says that this part establishes that there are major sins and minor sins. That's a concept we believe in, that some are major and some are minor. And I had some, some young people ask me the other day about the difference between these two. And we said we would talk about it and explore what they are and what's the difference and how do you tell. And... The point I made to them is that when we say small versus large, it's relative, isn't it? Right? This deed is a minor sin, not because it's unimportant, but it's a minor sin relative to something like murder or sorcery or worshiping idols and praying to other than Allah. Right? So it's, it, relative to that, it's minor, which doesn't mean that it's not a big deal or not important to avoid. So, but this verse establishes that there are major and minor sins. After describing these aspects of the Day of Judgment, Allah then mentions once again 
the story of the angels and shaitan and Adam alayhi salam and the refusal of Iblis to prostrate to Adam. That's mentioned in previous chapters of the Qur'an and Allah mentions it here once again. A person may wonder why is there repetition in the Qur'an? And the answer is there's always a reason for that. There's nothing extra or superfluous or unneeded in the Qur'an. The repetition serves a purpose. And you'll see that here when we look at the tafsir. You have a question? Yeah. Well, for the lines, like the humans, we see they are both the gods. Yeah. 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 They know that they know that they know what they did in this world. So when they're faced with the prospect of opening that book and reading it, they know the contents are not going to be good for them. And that's why they're saying, Ya Wailatana, woe is one to us. It doesn't leave anything out of those things. Yeah. It's an expression of their own remorse and worry. Yeah. So uh, those who did good would just know they, that they are not in trouble? Well, there's an elaborate description of all of the events we talked about in the lives of men. There's the, the books, there's the questioning, there's the weighing of the actions. Uh, we get from certain hadith the impression that we're not always going to be aware of how things are going to balance out until the deeds are weighed. Because we have the hadith in Tirmidhi of the man whose actions are weighed and the bad deeds are outweighing the good deeds. This is a believer. But the bad deeds he did are outweighing the good deeds. And he's really worried about what's going to happen. And the hadith describes how it is said to the angels that there's one more sahifa, one more scroll to be put on the, the scale, uh, on the side, the, the scale pan of the good deeds. He's thinking that one single thing is not going to tip the scale in my favor. But that scroll is of him saying sincerely from the bottom of his heart, La ilaha illallah. And that then tilts the scale in his favor where the good deeds outweighed the bad. And he enters Jannah and he doesn't face the hell. So this gives you the impression that there are still things to be weighed that we may not be fully aware of. Things maybe we forgot about, you know. Like you forget, this small thing, you. It was so small and insignificant when you did it that you completely forgot about it, that it turns out to be that one thing, right? Think about that. Like that, that random person you just said a nice word to and you didn't think much about it. You forgot about it a day later. And that may be the one thing that tilts the scale. And you see it, you say, SubhanAllah, SubhanAllah, who assigns values to these things that we think are insignificant, but they're significant because they are animated by ikhlas. And Allah loves ikhlas. It's, it's, it's something else. Intention and presence. Intentions and presence. Exactly. That's the key. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it works, and it goes the opposite way too, because the hadith, who were the first people to be questioned among Muslims? The first people to be questioned. 
the person who went in jihad, the person who memorized the Qur'an, and a person who gave lots of charity. Now they come on the Day of Judgment remembering these things and assigning value to them, thinking, yeah, good. And then they're the first ones questioned. And the, this person is reminded of Allah's favors, and then Allah asks them, what did you do? He says, Ya Rabb, I waged jihad fi sabirillah. And then Allah says, you lie. You only did it to be called brave and uh, this and that and to be admired by others. So go get that from others. The Quran reciter, same thing. Feels for prestige and to be looked up to by others. Same thing for the one who gave lots of charity. It was to be admired. So it, you know, it can go either way. Like, because a part of ikhlas is not witnessing your own ikhlas. Because if you witness the ikhlas, it's like, mm, I was so sincere. There's some pride there, right? If you forget about it, like, okay, it's for Allah's sake in the moment. No one's around here to admire me. And I hope for acceptance, but I'm not going to admire my own action. Like, ooh, look what I did. Right? That's ikhlas. It's just like humility. Humility is not, ooh, look how humble I am. <laughs> right? That's not humility, right? You know, in my humble opinion, right? Humility is not to witness your own humility. Sincerity is not to witness your own sincerity. You know it's for Allah's sake, but you're not obsessing about it and admiring yourself in that way because then it becomes self-serving in its own way. It becomes this way of making you feel good about yourself. So then it serves you and it, it makes you feel good and it becomes about your own feelings vis-a-vis -vis the person and what you did, right? Oh, I'm going to go to the homeless shelter and, feel, and help them so I feel better about myself, right? Look how, look how good I am. Look how altruistic I am. Look how nice I am. I am a good person, right? And then that becomes poisonous to one's own sincerity versus the person who is like Imam Zain al-Abidin or others among the Ahlul Bayt who would go out in the middle of the night and they distribute charity and they're somewhat disguised and no one would know who, would, who, who was giving out this charity until they died and the people who received it weren't getting it and they saw the, the marks on the, from the burlap sack on the back of Imam Zain al-Abidin, right? So let's conclude this inshallah. The, the final verse we're covering today is the end part of this theme that we're looking at today, which is the mentioning once again of the story of the angels, Iblis and Adam alayhi salam. وَإِذْ قُلْنَا لِلْمَلَائِكَةِ اسْجُدُوا لِآدَمَ فَسَجَدُوا إِلَّا إِبْلِيسِ كَانَ مِنَ الْجِنِّ فَفَسَقَ عَنْ أَمْرِ رَبِّهِ أَفَتَتَّخِذُونَهُ وَذُرِّيَّتَهُ أَوْلِيَاءَ مِنْ دُونِي وَهُمْ لَكُمْ عَدُوا بِئْسَ لِلظَّالِمِينَ بَدَلًا We said to the angels, bow down to Adam. So they bowed down except for Iblis. He was of the jinn and he defied the command of his Lord. Will you take him and his offspring as lords instead of me when they are an enemy to you? Evil is the exchange for the wrongdoers. Why does Allah mention this here? We said there's nothing that's repeated without wisdom and reason. You have to link, exactly, you have to link this back to the occasion of revelation. Link this back to Quraysh and 
their attitude towards the poor believers they didn't want to sit with. Link it back. They refused to sit in the company of the poor among the believers. What motivated them to demand a private audience with the Prophet What was the state of their arrogance? Exactly. So now you see the connection between their attitude that Allah mentions in the previous verses and that of Iblis, whose refusal was motivated also by arrogance. They refuse to humble themselves by sitting with the poor. Iblis refuses to humble himself, who has created a fire, to bow to one created from clay. So both of them have the same disease, the disease of arrogance, thinking that they're better than the others. So this is an indirect link between the arrogance of Iblis and the arrogance of Quraysh. Iblis says, I'm better than him. You created me from fire and you created them from him from clean, from, from clay. Quraysh said, we're better than them. We have wealth, we have power, we have prestige. They have none of that, we're better. Iblis says, how can I prostrate to someone like this? And Quraysh says, how can we sit with someone, with people like this? It's the same underlying attitude between Iblis and Quraysh. So Allah mentions this, tying their attitude to the attitude of shaitan, saying it's basically the same. And then Allah Ta'ala warns from emulating, from copying Iblis, saying, will you take him and his offspring as lords beside, instead of me, when they are an enemy to you, evil is the exchange for the wrongdoers. So we don't take shaitan or his people, his, his soldiers as awliya, as allies. The great Imam, Imam al-Baqalani, rahimahullah, he says that this ayah is connected with the description of the Day of Judgment that we were just reading. Because he says that on the Day of Judgment, the idol worshippers are going to be asked to bring their shuraka, their partners, their idols, the things they used to worship besides Allah Ta'ala. And Allah Ta'ala, when He tells them to bring these shuraka, obviously Allah knows that they can't do that, right? It's a challenge to them, right? And Allah Ta'ala knows who was the first person to instigate shirk among humanity. Who was that? Iblis himself. So he mentions this incident of Iblis and his refusal to prostrate to Adam to remind us of the roots of the entire problem. It's not just Quraysh, it's other people too, but it all goes back ultimately to Iblis. So Iblis is the root of this problem. Quraysh is just one example of that problem taking root within a specific people in a specific time. So this verse is linked to the previous verses and it's linked to Quraysh and their attitudes and what they were saying. And this verse is also clear in establishing that shaitan, Iblis, is a jinn and not a fallen angel. Right? There are some people who believe that shaitan is a fallen angel. And this is not exclusively with Christians or others. This belief is even among some Muslims. There is a precedent to it. 
This is one of the things about our tradition is that the deeper you go, the more you realize that sometimes people who have mistaken ideas have gotten those mistaken ideas from ancient history, from isolated individuals who had the same ideas and based on the same misunderstandings. Right? Some people did believe that shaitan was a fallen angel that disobeyed Allah and was kicked out. And their proof is the verses themselves, right? Which says that the angels were told to prostrate, فَسَجَدُوا إِلَّا Iblis, And they all prostrated except for Iblis. So you have the mustathna, the mustathna minhu. In Arabic, you have illa in the way it operates. They all prostrated, the angels, all prostrated except Iblis. So they believe that because he is excluded from them, he is from the same genus as them as well, right? All of the students came to class except Bobby. Is Bobby the student? Yeah, in English, that's how it works. However, in Arabic, when you use these kinds of phrases with illa, except, sometimes the, the one excluded isn't necessarily from the genus of the, the first group. You could say, in Arabic at least, which means all the students came except for the teacher. Yeah, okay. All of the students came except for the teacher. Does that mean the teacher is from the students? Of course not. It's very clear from that sentence because students, teacher. Now, if you say, All the students came except for Bobby. Could Bobby be a student here? Yes. Could he be the teacher? He could be the teacher. How would you know if he's a student or a teacher? Okay, he starts teaching, he comes in, gets, on, gets by the blackboard, yes. Or you have some other evidence that he's a teacher. Likewise here, if you look at the surface of it, on the surface, you could say that Iblis is from the angels. But we exclude him from the angels and say he wasn't an angel. We say he's a jinn. Why? Well, because we have other evidence indicating that he's not an angel, but he was in the company of the angels. And the one clear proof is in this verse, right? Kana minan jinn. He was among the jinn. And those who said that he was a fallen angel, how did they tackle this verse? Because, because jinn in Arabic can also mean uh, anything that is subtle or concealed. He was among those that were very subtle and hidden and not apparent to people. So they would say, this is not saying that he's from this creation called jinn. They would say, rather, he was concealed and hidden and subtle because he is khannas, you know, he's very tricky and sneaky. That's far-fetched though, right? It's far-fetched, but that was how a small group of people tried to respond. But that's not the accepted view among the overwhelming majority of the ulama of tafsir. It's an isolated view. And we affirm that he is not a fallen angel because we also believe the angels are general. They're masum. They're protected from error. 
لا يعصون الله ما أمرهم ويفعلون ما يؤمرون Right, because the other verse establishes that the angels do not disobey Allah, what they're commanded, and they do what they're told. So I, it goes back to the methodology we have as Ahl Sunnah, where we take all of the relevant evidence together, and we look at everything and give everything its right, so we come with a holistic understanding. Contrary to uh, uh, groups and individuals who take isolated text and ignore what the other verses are saying, and they don't reconcile them properly. Right? That's the hallmark of Ahlul Zayg, the people mentioned in Ali Imran, uh, who follow the Mutashabihat without understanding the Mutashabihat in light of the Muhkamat and, and so on. So we learn. Grammatically, you could, yeah, that would work. But that grammatically, that doesn't, that wouldn't, on its own, establish that he was not from the genus of angels, because grammatically, that's how you do it anyway. Even if it, so, you can say grammatically, the, because istithna, the the way that works in Arabic with illa, is from the mansubat, is from the things that cause the nouns to become mansub. In this case, with the fatha. So that on its own wouldn't be enough to, to prove it. You would need something else, right? So at any rate, we learn that he's not a fallen angel. We also learn that he has awliya, and that Allah instructs us here to take him and them as our enemies. So we take Iblis as an enemy, we also take his awliya, his allies, as enemies. We don't take them as allies, we take them as enemies. And this applies to the, to the shayateen of ins wal jinn, the shayateen of human beings and jinn. Right? So we don't ally with the awliya of shaitan. We ally only with the awliya of Rahman or people who have common interest, who are not overtly pushing the agenda of shaitan, right? Who are not necessarily shayateen of, of, of ins, right? So that ins our tafsir for today, inshallah. Uh, yes? Yeah, other jinn. Yeah. 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 Right, he has offspring. He has offspring, the jinn, among the jinn. Uh, and then you have awliya among humans and among jinn. Yeah. So, so yeah. jinn live and die like humans? Uh, not exactly like humans, but they do live and die. You know, they can be killed uh, purposely or accidentally. They have a lifespan. They don't live forever. Yeah. But he's been around. He's been around. <laughs> and, and, and he's been around because he asked Allah for that. قَالَ أَنظِرْنِي إِلَى يَوْمِ يُبْعَثُونَ He has to give him respite. What boggles my mind is because shaitan has an understanding of Allah greater than most human beings, <laughs> you know, and still defies. Yeah, like that, like, like that arrogance, like that. It's, it's terrifying for you to reflect on because you just, what could happen to you, right? <laughs> 
So. Yeah, there, there's a deep philosophical, uh, theosophical explanation for the existence of Shaitan yeah. and the wisdom of Shaitan and how his existence and actions reflect uh, the, the unveiling and experience of the meanings and implications of the divine names in the names of beauty and the names of rigor, Jalal and Jamal. And this is why some of the awliya in the past would say that shaitan is the dirty wash rag of the, of the cosmos. It's, yeah, I'll leave it at that. I, I think it's worth exploring. I don't know if this is the, the proper venue for that because it requires a lot of unpacking of the, the certain theological issues and how we approach uh, evil and understand evil and how we understand the names and the attributes and how their meanings and implications unfold in the created phenomenal, the phenomenal realm. But I think if it's something that people continually think about to the point where it's bothering them or they're seeking answers, it's worth exploring. But uh, not to necessarily, not to unnecessarily explore for people who don't really, right? Allah creates uh, all things, right? How do you, you know good uh, in reference to its opposite, right? You know beauty, and by beauty you know ugliness, right? And you know that these things are necessary in your existence. Yeah. It's just, you know, like it's just, for me, it's just a reflection on human beings when other human beings always want to place the blame on, oh, you know, that's that fault. Oh, because of this, those people are like that. No, we all have a choice in this life, no matter where Allah puts us, right? Yeah. We all have a choice. Like people who are always saying, oh, well, they did that because of the shaitan. The, the devil made them do the it. The devil made me do it. No, you had a choice, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like what some of the, the awliya of the past would say. Instead of obsessing over your enemy, go to your most trusted and most powerful ally who protects you from your enemy. If you're weak and relatively defenseless and you have a very powerful enemy coming after you, what is the better, the better option? To prepare yourself and stand in direct combat with that enemy? or to go to your most uh, trusted and most powerful ally who can completely vanquish and defeat that enemy. Go to your ally. Turn to your ally. And that's why we say, A'udhu Billahi Minashaytan Rajim. Right? Focus more on your protecting ally than your enemy, and your protecting ally will protect you from your enemy and vanquish him. That's the approach. But I mean, like when you look at things today, the enemy is so hidden. Because what people think is a friend is actually the enemy. Yeah. Wallahu Rasulu Alam Sallallahu Sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.